If you've been irritated by the buzz of a mosquito or suffered the sting of a wasp, and frankly, who hasn't, you may have wondered what functions certain insects serve. Well, here's one for those of you with a sweet tooth. Without flies as pollinators, your chocolate habit would end. In fact, many services would stop. Our lives couldn't exist without insects. They're the most numerous animals on Earth and the oldest. These are the creatures that really are, do underpin life as we know it on this planet. As, as terrible as it would be to lose rhinos, what an awful crime it would be to lose tigers and orangutans, the loss of these creatures wouldn't cause uh, mass malnutrition or starvation like the loss of insects would. And now alarming studies show that insect populations are in dangerous decline. Find out what we stand to lose when the buzzing goes away and how we can address this hidden emergency. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, a celebration of the chores taken up by insects, from pollination to being food for wild birds to assisting with decomposition. Also, what surprising role insects may play in self-care among chimpanzees. And the forgotten story of how a bug and a few clever entomologists saved the Golden State from a lethal threat. This episode is The Latest Buzz. Now, you may have a family tree that goes back a few generations, but an insect's family tree goes back 400 million years. And if you think your backyard is buggy, which if true makes you lucky indeed, well, consider these population numbers. Entomologists estimate there are 10 quintillion insects alive at any given moment. It's rare to see a word designating numbers that high, unless we're counting cells or stars. 10 quintillion. That's a one followed by 19 zeros. But we don't know the actual number of insect species. It might be 91,000 to name one-sided number, or 400,000, or millions. Face it, when a single leaf can hide you from the world, you're easily overlooked. So let's begin by looking closely at a couple of these species. Here's a story about evolutionary adaptation, observant entomologists. And Seth, are you a, are you a fan of California oranges? Do, do oranges play a role in your California lifestyle? Well, they certainly do. I have one whenever they're in season, although I have to say I still have trouble getting into them. Okay. Well, then you are already invested in the story because it is also about how one bug helped save the California citrus industry and ushered in a new kind of pest control. Okay, the scene is California in the late 19th century. Can you guess which industry is booming or which industries are booming? Well, the biggest industries in California have always been, uh, you know, agriculture and then technology and movies. <laughs> okay, this is not about technology and movies, but it is about agriculture. It just took off in California at the time. There were new irrigation districts in California, so all of a sudden there was water coming through. The Transcontinental Railroad had been built across uh, the country at that point. It was just reaching California. And oranges were just flying across the country at that point, all the way to New York and every, every place in between. Hello, I am Martin Kernan. I am a science journalist, and I also write about history. Yeah, well, that's right. 
uh, the railroads invented the refrigerator car, which was basically <laughs> just another car like any other one. But they had, you know, boxes at either end of the car for ice. And that was good enough to ship them across country, I guess. That's right. Martin Kernan tells this story in a recent article for Smithsonian. He says that the fledgling citrus industry was becoming a lucrative business in the 1880s because, until then, even oranges grown in Florida were a rare treat. Yeah, I think anything becomes a delicacy when it's hard to get, it seems. So you can imagine the excitement when huge boxcars full of these oranges started arriving from the West Coast. And people were going nuts for them. Oranges traveling to the East Coast were a $20 million annual business. It seemed the sun was shining brightly on the citrus industry. It sounds to me like a a phrase to the effect of, but then it's coming up. What happened? Well, it happened kind of insidiously. It happened very quietly. And it happened in the North. It's hard to know exactly who saw it first. Um, There's indications in newspapers that homeowners in and around the um, San Francisco area started noticing this growth in their ornamental trees. Not only were their trees becoming infected with this pest that they couldn't identify, but that they couldn't get rid of it. What looked like a growth was in fact an insect. Entomologists identified it as what's known as a scale insect, and not one native to the state. The scientific name for this invasive species is the Isaria. It's also known as the cottony cushion scale because it looks like a little piece of cotton or a dollop of whipped cream. Um, And there's these little fibery things that hang off it and stick to the leaves of plants. It's also called the fluted scale because if you look really closely at its egg sac, you'll see these little flutes, these little grooves. Martin, I wonder if you could describe for us, when you see this bug on a branch, it looks like a fungus or something. Can you just describe what we're looking at? Well, I didn't describe it as well as one of the citrus growers described it. Um, He described it as as a hideous leprosy. So when these bugs cluster and they kind of cluster together in these white masses, on the branches and on the leaves of citrus trees, they make it look like the tree has a disease of some kind, um, like a fungus perhaps. And most of that unhealthiness doesn't so much come from the the white of the bug's exac, it really comes from this black sooty mold. So the county's cushion scale has this piercing sucking mouth part, okay, this beak that it pokes into the vein of the leaf and it extracts the sap. So this, the sap of the citrus leaf comes out and that sweet sap excretion grows mold. They not only like ornamental trees in private home gardens, citrus, citrus is their preferred tree of infection. Well, that sounds pretty darn off-putting. I'm not sure I'd want to get into an orange that was covered with that kind of stuff. (laughs) And headed for the oranges they were, because the cottony cushion scale is not a bug that stays put. The way they travel is actually they don't have wings. So their little larvae, which they call crawlers, these little tiny red larvae, their legs are black and they have hooks on them, will actually hitch rides on anything, birds, animals, people, and even the wind. The citrus farmers and entomologists knew about the pests up north, 
and perhaps even that they were moving south toward Los Angeles. But I don't think they really appreciated the gravity of what was headed for them. So you can imagine what is hanging in the balance here. Yeah, a major new industry, a source of revenue and a source of vitamin C for people in the cold northeast. Now, as we said, the voracious insect threatening the California citrus industry at the end of the 19th century wasn't native to the state. So people wondered, where did it come from and how did it get here? There are some suspects. There's theories and there are suspects. People were blamed. One of them was a sugar baron by the name of George Gordon. And he he was famous for importing ornamental trees because the sugar barons were the ones really controlling the Trans-Pacific trade at that point. So there's Australia, there's Hawaii, and the guys running, should have been some gals, but the guys running the steamships back then were these people involved in the sugar trade and they had sugar plantations. And so George Gordon, they think, had imported some acacia trees from Australia infested with cottony cushion scale to San Francisco. And it was there they think that the cottony cushion scale took hold and started to spread. The citrus growers, the orange growers, tried everything they could to stop the infestation of these insects, these cottony cushion scales. Uh, You ready to hear what they tried? You bet. They tried everything. Whatever they thought might work. Kerosene, acids. They would take out the whale soap and the other kinds of non-toxic sorts of washes. They even tried fire hoses to, to blast the scales off of the orange trees. They even pulled out rifles. And it's not really clear in the reports, but what I think they were doing is using the concussive force of these gunpowder blasts to blow the insects off of the trees. And they always grew back. They always grew back. Not only did they reinfect the tree, but they spread more trees in an ever-widening ring in these groves spreading out. And they became really desperate. This sounds pretty much like a 1950s sci-fi horror film, right? You got this invasion of some alien species, and you try everything, including, you know, explosives to get rid of it, and all it does is get worse. (laughs) That's exactly it. Now, while you, Seth, and the citrus farmers may have considered the Isaria a villain feasting on their trees, there are no villains in ecology. From the insect's point of view, of course, it was just trying to survive. Nevertheless, when the cottony cushion scale arrives at the commercial citrus orchards in Los Angeles, the devastation unfolds quickly. It's unknown how many of California's 600,000 citrus trees succumb to Isaria, but here's one measure that Martin found. In 1887, the state's citrus export was 2,000 boxcars. The next year, it was down to 400. Farmers were panicked. The U.S. entomologists were now involved, and they began considering fresh approaches for solving this dire agricultural threat. Are there any predators? Is there anything that can make a meal out of these guys? Great question. And that brings us to the search that the entomologists undertook to try to find a natural predator for the cottony cushion scale. Charles Valentine Riley, or as he's commonly referred to, C.V. Riley, So C.V. Riley was the second uh, United States entomologist in the United States Department of Agriculture's Division of Entomology. 
And he was called upon by the desperate folks in, in California to come and try to help. And he had a reputation for being a really brilliant uh, scientist. And if anybody could solve the problem, uh, C.V. Riley could solve the problem. He had a couple of very capable underlings, a couple of very capable deputies, Albert Cobell, and he becomes a real hero here, and also Daniel Coquillet. The idea of, of biological pest control uh, wasn't new at the time. Um, it had been around for a really long time. In fact, I think, you know, if you go far enough back, it originated in China at, at some point, you know, ancient China. And, and in fact, already in California, there had been some talk of it. So it can't really be credited to C.V. Riley for having had the bright idea of going and trying to find the, the natural predator to the cotton cushion scale. I thought the story was about kind of the typical invasive species story where humans by accident introduced a foreign uh, species and it has a negative effect on the ecology. But I learned that really this was a story about finding balance. When entomologists went to Australia looking for the cushion scale, they actually had trouble finding it. There wasn't a lot of it in Australia. And that's because I think there were all these other environmental pressures, predation and, and scarcity, that kept its populations naturally in check. Entomologist Albert Cobell eventually finds the cottony cushion scale on an ornamental tree, along with its natural predator, identified by an Australian entomologist, a parasitic fly called the cryptocatchum, or the cryptofly. But he was in for a surprise. He noticed among the cottony cushion scale not only these flies, this cryptocatchum flies, but these, these little tiny ladybugs. These little tiny ladybugs that are about half the size of what, what a listener may understand as like a, a normal American ladybug. These tiny ladybugs crawling around. He didn't stop to find out what the ladybugs were doing there. Albert Cobell grabs branches infested with the cottony cushion scale, the crypto fly, and the ladybugs, also called the novice ladybugs, and brings them back to California. It's there that entomologist Daniel Coquillette set up experiments inside what he called a propagation tent. So he had these small orange trees inside these screened-in areas, and he would painstakingly insert the bugs on these trees that were infested with cottony cushion scale to see what the reaction was. And it, it, was, it was months of work. They test out this ladybug and the crypto fly on the cottony cushion scale, and the crypto fly kind of dies out, Seth. Um, but here's what happens with the ladybug when it meets a cottony cushion scale. These tiny ladybugs had the appetite for cottony cushion scale. Ladybugs to the rescue. It's their, their meal of choice. It, it is the only thing they will eat. And the cottony cushion scale is much bigger than the tiny ladybug. It really is. It's, it looks like just a tiny dot on like a big dollop of whipped cream. And then all of a sudden, you'll notice that the dollop of whipped cream starts to disappear. And these tiny ladybugs become almost crazed in the way that they consume. Not only is the ladybug themselves feasting, but the larva, if there's any ladybug larva, they also consume the cushion scale. They leave nothing but the empty skin, is, is the way Albert Cobell describes it. I'm not exactly sure what he was referring to with respect to the skin, but every edible from the perspective of the, of the novius ladybug is consumed. They were releasing these uh, ladybugs in the orchards. Right. 
Exactly. Now, knowing, and, and maybe they knew the same thing then, there, there's, there could be a lot of unintended consequences when we try to introduce the natural enemy of an invasive species. But at the time, I think Coquillette had been so painstaking in his research in the propagation tent and the, that the stakes were so high for the California citrus industry that whatever risk they may have been aware of at the time was worth it. He opens one side of the tent. So we're there in the very sunny California orchard and he pulls up one side and leaves it open and lets the, uh, the novius spread to the adjoining trees in the orchard. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, the populations had increased to clean essentially every infected orange tree from its infestation of cottony cushion scale. It works. Wow, that's an amazing story. But it sounds like it ends well. And we had this tiny ladybug to thank for the oranges that uh, we enjoy at breakfast. True, but there is a twist. The novius ladybug was too good. The entomologists discovered to their horror that after all the cottony cushion scale had been eaten, that the novius ladybugs would eat each other. They were little cannibals. Not only, not only would they eat each other, they would eat their own larvae. So the owners of the orange groves scrambled basically to, to preserve some cottony cushion scale. So they were put into this, this odd position of having to save the very tree pests that they were trying to eradicate so that they could keep two small populations in balance. But still a victory. In fact, the introduction of the Novus ladybug to the citrus grove remains the standard against which biological pest control is measured, says Martin. Of course, biological control is not a silver bullet, and there are more often far-reaching unintended consequences that develop. This effort worked, Seth, because the entomologists were careful to identify this special relationship. Thanks to science and history journalist Martin Kernan for telling us this tale. You can read it, too. His article, The Bug That Saved California, appeared in the January-February 2022 issue of Smithsonian. Primatologists make a surprising observation. A story of chimpanzees, self-medication, and insects in West Africa. That's next. This episode of Big Picture Science is the latest buzz. going to bring some other animals into our discussion about insects. Hi, my name is Lara Southern and I'm a PhD candidate currently studying communication in one of our closest living relatives, chimpanzees, at the University of Osnabrück in Germany. Hi, my name is Alessandra Mascaro and I'm a research assistant for the Zuga Chimpanzee Project since 2019. Alessandra and Lara spent hours observing chimpanzee behavior as part of the research at the Ozuka Chimpanzee Project in Gabon, West Africa. We aim to observe these individuals in their natural habitat to get an essence of how they live socially, how they communicate socially, and how they experience life. So we, we basically, we document every single thing that they do from the moment that they wake up in the morning to the moment that they go to sleep at night. A better understanding of chimpanzee behavior helps promote efforts to protect 
these endangered animals. After five years of watching our primate cousins, the researchers thought they had seen everything. Then one day, Alessandra saw something unusual. A female chimp named Susie was interacting with her son, Sia, and he had cut his foot the day before. And uh, in that moment specifically, they were resting and grooming each other. And uh, when I suddenly saw Susie reaching out and grabbing something small from under a leaf, which she put to her mouth, she pressed it between the lips, and then she applied onto the open wound of Sia using the fingertips. And then using the mouth, she took it back and she placed it again using her fingers. Alessandra says she didn't think much of the behavior until she, Lara, and colleagues watched the videos of the interaction. And we agreed that we saw something that we have never seen before, because Susie appeared to uh, reach out and grab an insect, catching an insect directly from under the leaf, and apply the insect onto the wound. So here is a chimpanzee apparently using the insect for, for what? As a salve or poultice on a wound? I mean, that's kind of incredible. Well, Alessandra and Laura thought so too. And so over a period of 15 months, they looked to see if the behavior repeated. It did. And they published their findings in the February 2022 issue of Current Biology. The title of their paper, Application of Insects to Wounds of Self and Others by Chimpanzees in the Wild. And if chimpanzees are indeed using insects for treating injuries, well, it might be the first reported instance of non-human mammals doing so. When we really started watching the videos back, we were trying to kind of piece together really the sequence of what we had observed. And keep in mind that at the beginning, we really didn't know yet that this was an insect. So we always kept calling it the tiny little object. We kept, we were like the, the mysterious object um, from underneath the leaf. And so once we started seeing the behavior, we noticed always that there was this initial step um, in which they moved the object or what we now know to be an insect to their mouth, um, which we first thought maybe was to immobilize the insect, seeing if like a tiny little insect was trying to get away, fly away, you would try to maybe try and crush it. Um, It also seems to be have a purpose for maybe to mix it with a little bit of saliva. So if you want to apply something to the surface of a wound, which can which can sometimes be quite large, it might help to have this as almost kind of like a paste. This seems to be a really crucial part in all of the events that we witnessed was this passage to first the mouth and then to the wound. Okay, so, uh, but you saw this in other chimps. I mean, this wasn't just a peculiarity of this particular mother-son relationship. It was really interesting because that was the first observation was this kind of one of the most special ones really that we saw the whole time was this really nice um, interaction between a mother and her son. But what we subsequently saw over the next of the rest year were mostly applications by an injured individual onto their own wounds. So just like in the case of humans treating their own wounds, we spend a lot of time actually dedicated to our own wound care in terms of cleaning it, um, applying some kind of antiseptic lotion. So it's the exact same thing with chimps. They're very interested in their own personal health and safety and well-being. And it was only one year later that we saw another aloe application event where we were calling it of whether second individual applied an insect onto the wound of another individual. And these are these are still quite rare in our observations, but we have begun um, to see this more often. Well, an immediate question that comes to my mind, Alessandra, is does it work? I mean, does it work as an antiseptic or, or promote healing or stop the pain? Or I mean, does it do anything beneficial? 
Well, for the moment, insect application onto wounds in, non, in the non-animal kingdom was never documented, but we do know that insects produce a lot of substances with therapeutic effect, like antibacterial, antiviral. So this discovery for us was completely surprising because this led us to um, understand that not only humans can use insects, and we do hope to analyze what they are using really and the, the effect that they are having on the healing of the wound of the chimpanzee itself. But this is something that we don't know still. All right, they're crushing up these insects and then applying them, right, as uh, some sort of poultry or, or something like that to the wound. Is there a particular kind of insect that they use or is any insect good in a, in a wound situation? So this is what we're, we're currently trying to investigate and we've really tried to begin. It's a much harder task. I think we've been asked by many people, so what are these insects? Like show us the picture of the insect. And ultimately why it's so hard is because really by the end of this behavioral sequence where they've taken the insect from underneath the leaf, put it to their mouth, crushed it up into a tiny little minuscule pieces and put it into their wounds, um, there's not often much left. And we've really struggled for many hours trying to find little tiny pieces of insects on the forest floor. And so this is really an ongoing effort to try and collect, first of all, any types of specimens um, from these events. Um, we do have the assumption that they are flying insects, given the way that they were always caught. So there seems to be this very rapid grabbing motion that's always used in really all cases. So it seems that they would be small flying objects. And that's what we've kind of narrowed it down to at the moment. But we do think that it will be really interesting if they are, in fact, not just using one type of insect, but if there may be kind of like a, um, a range of insects that they're selecting for, um, maybe something to do with the type of wound. But that's, these are really just kind of hypotheses at this stage. Okay, well, uh, Laura, I mean, I guess the big question here is whether this is an accidentally discovered behavior that has been passed down by teaching, you know, the next generation to do this, in other words, it's a bit of chimp culture, or is this a hardwired behavior like, you know, learning how to bring down prey if you're a, a lion or something like that? Did they discover this medical treatment or is it the result of evolutionary selection? Yeah, that's really the, the question that remains to be answered. And I think this is this will be the subject now. Alessandra's just starting her PhD research on this. So we have a ton of different questions and different research avenues. What we do know for the moment is that nobody has yet documented this behavior in um, the 60 plus years of research that's been done at kind of long term field sites in other places across Africa. However, what we have done now is we're really doing a call for researchers all across other different long-term field sites to ask if anybody has seen this types of behavior. We've released a lot of videos. We've released all the kind of sequence of what to look for specifically. And we hope that this will really inspire kind of chimp field researchers, but not only chimpanzees, because there's there is um, there's also gorillas and bonobos, and it might not be something that is just present in great apes. It really might be something that has just been missed, because as we said, that that first video was just a was just an accident, and of course they had been doing the behavior before that. It was just that we didn't know what to look for. In much of the world, there's a concern about the disappearance of insects. Not that they disappear completely, but that the density of insect population seems to be decreasing in much of the world. Does this pose a threat to the chimp population of Africa? Chimpanzees used to feed on a large number of insect species. So they don't usually eat only plants, but only insects for sure. If they are going to decrease because of the 
temperature variation, climate change in general, this is going to affect their diet abilities. So uh, for sure, this could have an impact. But we can also suppose that if these species of insect uh, have a, an influence into the healing process of their wounds, this behavioral solution can potentially disappear. And we don't know the consequence at the moment because we have not studied yet the effect of this application, but truly can potentially have it. I think it just shows us how all kind of factors within an ecosystem are really closely knit and how as human, as in human observers, we might not always be able to see these links so directly, but that they are always there. And so in the sense that these two species have really kind of co-adapted to these environments and that they depend, I'm not saying that insects depend on chimpanzees in a certain way, but that there's this kind of food web and mutualistic um, relationships in, in these diverse, really highly functioning, pristine environments that um, we might not be able to see, but that are so crucially important to each um, individual within that um, web. And I think that there's sometimes the smallest things can play such a huge role in changing that species' um, current circumstances, but also maybe changing their life. All right. Well, I, I want to thank you both for uh, talking to us today. Laura Southern, thanks so very much for telling us about this really remarkable behavior. And thank you for featuring our research as well. So we are a very small NGO and we really do appreciate all kind of the, the publicity we can get. And also it's really great just to share our research with anybody who would be interested. Alessandra Mascaro, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Seth, for our conversation. It was really a pleasure. Laura Southern is a PhD candidate in primatology at the University of Osnabrück, who is doing research at the Ozuga Chimpanzee Project in Gabon, West Africa. Alessandra Mascaro is an evolutionary biologist and a volunteer with the project. You know, Molly, I've uh, known people who've studied animal behavior, in particular fish. And, you know, the researcher looked at this tank of fish for hours and hours every week, even, even filming it, right? And they always seem to find something. And it's something that's surprising because we think of these as, you know, dumb beasts, but they're not so dumb. Well, <laughs> not many people think of them as dumb beasts any longer, Seth. As we know, chimpanzees are highly intelligent. Uh, you know what image is staying in my mind is that of them wetting the insects before they place them on the wounds. Yeah, well, that says something. I mean, maybe they're doing that just to you know, kill them or quiet them down so they can chomp on them. I mean, I don't know. But the the point is, this is such specific behavior. You know, did they learn this? I mean, do all chimps do this? I, I think they say that they're going to investigate that. If all chimps do it, then I say, these chimps are smarter than I thought they were. Hmm. It sounds like you really underestimate how intelligent chimpanzees are. Uh, speaking of the... Uh primates and the megafauna, you know, they often become the center of attention when we do animal stories. But what's compelling about this story is that it's the tiny, lesser charismatic animals that are stealing the story here. Um, and they might be playing a vital role in the health of these chimpanzees. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I think that this is a door that these two researchers have opened to a kind of behavior that would tell you something really rather important about the chimps, if they somehow have learned that this is a good thing to do, I mean, that's remarkable. That's, if you will, that, that you know, they have science at some level. They do. 
Well, we can do without mammals. We would never want to, <laughs> but we could do without them. Earthly life, however, depends on insects, and research indicates that their populations are declining. What's behind this vanishing act, and what we lose when these tiny creatures go away? Insects are the closest creatures to us in our lives, it feels like, other than maybe our cats and dogs. You know, they sting us, they uh, land on our food, they um, swarm us around our faces when we go outside sometimes. They seem kind of uncomfortably close, and the idea that they could be in any kind of trouble seemed kind of fanciful up until a couple of years ago, until researchers started to kind of collect the data and got a kind of bigger picture about what's actually happening with insect decline. That's next. This episode of Big Picture Science is the latest buzz. It's probably been a while since you wiped insect splatter off your windshield. That unpleasant chore was once part of the ritual of any long drive. And if so, you may have noticed that you need to clean your windshield less often these days. Insect populations are dwindling around the world. It seems preposterous because insects would seem to be everywhere, from ants marching across your kitchen floor to gnats swarming your blanket at the beach. And yet... I am Oliver Millman. I'm the environment correspondent of The Guardian US, and I'm the author of The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. He pulls together the numerous stories that you may have been hearing about declining insect numbers and species and reminds us what we lose if these buzzing, winged, often beautiful, many-legged creatures disappear and about the tasks they perform to keep ecosystems intact. Oliver, I wonder if you could introduce us to one of your favorite insects that you came to know while reporting on this book, maybe one that you don't get to describe very often. So one of the most impressive insects that I came across in the course of writing this book is the Hercules moth, which is the world's largest moth. It's got a wingspan as wide as a dinner plate, but it doesn't have a mouth. It, it lives on the reserves it's built up while it was eating as a caterpillar. It also has kind of two false eyes in its rear end to confuse predators. So it's an incredibly impressive and beautiful um, insect. It's really one of the most incredible insects you would likely ever see. Um, and, and it's kind of one of the real kind of jewels of the insect world that I really think is worth kind of keeping around and keeping in mind when we think about insects, and when we think about them as being um, annoying or pesky creatures, there is this kind of beauty in the insect world. And I think maybe the Hercules moth sums it up best. Well, that brings me to this question, which is, you know, if, if attention is given to animals, it's often given to um, the megafauna, either to describe how remarkable they are or what the threats are that they're facing. Oliver, how does our perspective of the world change if we shift our attention to the invertebrates? Yeah, there is this kind of species kind of bias that many of us have about what's important in our world. And a lot of that is drawn through aesthetics and also culturally as well. I mean, culturally, we've been made to think of insects as something that are disease-ridden, um, annoying, or even irrelevant. I mean, there are kind of million species of named insects in the world. That's only a fraction of what's out there. There may be 5 million, 10 million, maybe 30 million. Uh, and of those, we maybe only really think fondly of, 
of bees, butterflies, maybe fireflies. The rest of them we, we don't really think about at all. And if we do think about them, we think about them in a negative way. But once you actually dig into the roles insects play in our lives, kind of get a better understanding and appreciation of them, you you kind of begin to understand these are the creatures that really are do underpin life as we know it on this planet. We would not have the order societies we have now without insects. And as, as terrible as it would be to lose rhinos, uh, what an awful crime it would be to lose um, tigers and orangutans, the loss of these creatures wouldn't cause uh, mass malnutrition or starvation like the loss of insects would. Well, you begin your book with a pretty grim description of a dystopia where um, the insects have disappeared and society basically collapses. Uh, the foods that humans are eating are those that are pollinated by the wind, such as, such as rice. I wonder if you would be willing to turn that scenario on its head and describe a world in which the insect populations are thriving. And what does that look like? Yeah, well, I've been lucky enough to get kind of glimpse of what a world kind of teeming with insects would be like. And obviously that was the world that we kind of found ourselves in up to the age of mass industrialization, growth of the human population, the conversion of uh, land to agriculture. I've been to kind of um, wildflower meadows, um, green roofs, which are kind of um, those kind of meadows artificially put onto urban landscapes. And, and these are places which aren't kind of covered in uh, chemicals or the grass isn't cut. It's, it's kind of really, really left to kind of its own devices. And you see this kind of enormous plethora of insect life. It's kind of you walk through it and it's, there are bugs hitting your legs. They're up in your face. And not just that, it's the feeling that it's alive. There's this kind of thrumming kind of vibrancy to it you see you see them around you hear them around it feels like the the air around you is crackling with life and that's kind of what a world with insects at full abundance is like it's it's a very vibrant alive place it's not the kind of deadened kind of uh, environment that we seem to have imposed upon ourselves as well as them. So in this world that you had the privilege of visiting that it no longer exists widely, insects are buzzing all around. And, and describe some of the jobs that they will be doing. What does that look like? Yeah, so their, their roles are numerous and invaluable. So they pollinate about a third of the world's food crops. Um, so everything from kind of apples, cranberries, um, melons, broccoli, blueberries, cherries. You wouldn't have those without insect populations. And famously chocolate. Yes. Uh, as as little as we would like to praise tiny midges, uh, a tiny midge is responsible for pollinating the uh, plant that chocolate comes from. So you would not have chocolate without this tiny midge. So perhaps think of that next time you're, you're eating a chocolate bar. Uh, they do a lot of the unglamorous work of breaking down feces, breaking down corpses, um, beetles and blowflies and other insects do that kind of dirty work until the bacteria get to get to work beyond them. So a lot of that is, is done um, kind of out of sight and out of mind for us. Of course, once they do that, that actually helps the whole cycle of life. It, you know, the nutrients then uh, are kind of passed through into soils, into plants, replenishing them. Uh, so they keep kind of forests and other kind of landscapes um, vibrant and alive through to the cycling of nutrients um, through the whole ecosystem. 
and they provide food themselves for other creatures. So about half of the world's bird species rely upon insects for food. If you're um, raising a young chick, you will know it requires thousands and thousands of insects to eat before it can become a, um, a fully-fledged bird. In your book, you describe a method that researchers are using to track beetle populations, and they're looking at the chemical traces of the beetles in the feathers of the birds that eat them. Do I have that right? Could you explain what the scientists are doing and, and what they're learning about those beetle populations? Yeah, so the, there's incredible research that can be done where you can take samples from birds and see what they've been eating, uh, see how their diets are changing, and also what they're ingesting in terms of chemicals. So neonicotinoids, which are the, the kind of main kind of deadly insecticides spread on fields in the US and many other countries, um, they are catastrophic for um, insect populations. They're also pretty bad for birds. So the birds are picking up um, seeds that have been coated in this chemical and eating them, and it's been shown to affect their health uh, quite badly. The chemicals can, can get into their feathers. Um, but um, yeah, the scientists can find about, uh, all kinds of things about birds from their feathers um, and other uh, um, tests done upon them. And they can see what's happening with their diets. They can see how um, their actual uh, intake of, of insects is changing. And in many places, it's a, it's a worrying uh, set of results. Will you describe what the threats are to insects? Because it's, it's not just one threat. There are multitude yeah, so there are lots of threats um, assailing insects right now. I mean, there's three main ones. The first one would be habitat loss. So we've obviously deforested a large part of the world. We've converted um, kind of untouched grasslands into um, monocultural farming fields, uh, cities, roads, and so on. And that has been disastrous for insects. Um, the second thing we've done is we've doused a lot of that land with chemicals, uh, highly toxic chemicals, insecticides that um, are very, very effective at killing off insects, not just the pests that we hate for chewing our crops up, but the insects that we value and admire and actually are useful in uh, protecting our crops because they eat the pests. So that has been a kind of indiscriminate killing that has swept across much of uh, the Western world and increasingly that farming practice is being adopted elsewhere in Asia and Africa now too. Uh, and the third thing, which is the escalating uh, crisis for insects is climate change. Um, previously it was thought that climate change wouldn't affect insects as much as other animals, but research has made clear that um, insects uh, are, you know, live within quite a narrow band of temperature. They aren't able to move beyond that, such as fish, for example. We know about fish kind of heading towards the poles because it's cooler there. Um, insects aren't able to move that far. Unless you're a dragonfly or something, you can't actually um, travel great distances if you're an insect. So you're kind of trapped in uh, the environment around you. And as that's being heated up, you're seeing many species of insects struggle to uh, survive and uh, adapt to that. And there are, other in there are other impacts as well. Light pollution is another big one. We've lit up the night skies, um, which kind of scrambles the hardwired nature of insects to tell the difference between night and day. It affects their mating and communication and so on. So we're doing lots of, lots of things, big and small, to make this world quite an unpleasant place for insects. 
So let's talk about what is happening to the insect populations. And you write that they are in decline, but they're not in decline evenly across the board. And you write that it's not a, quote, single downward sloping line on a graph. It's more like a lot of different lines. Describe for us what is happening to insect populations. Can you expound on that? Yes. So because we haven't um, mapped out the entirety of insect life around the world, it's impossible for us to say what's happening with their populations in every part of the world. We just don't know in each country if there is a huge decline underway. But there are some pretty stunning studies out there showing that uh, in a lot of places uh, there are some incredible declines of insects. Um, there was one meta-study in 2018 finding that 40% of insect species are declining globally, and that's based on the data that we, we have. That's 40% of insect species? Yes, are declining globally. Again, it's an incomplete picture, but it's of, of the studies that we have. Um, and there's another study that backed up that study, which found that insect populations are falling by kind of one to 2% a year around the world. That's the kind of really big, big picture. We're losing around one to two percent of insects um, a year um, based on what we know. So uh, the United Nations has kind of warned about this. There is a kind of looming crisis for food security. They estimate there's about half a million insect species that could go extinct by the midpoint of this century. So finally, although it shouldn't be finally, it, it really is a, a primary goal of speaking to you is to look at solutions. And you write that the solutions are surprisingly straightforward, and there are things that all of us can do to confront this um, insect decline. And I wonder if you could give us an outline of what those solutions are. Yeah, well, I mean, this kind of like big picture kind of policy stuff that you see happening in the European Union, for example, they've banned three of the main neonicotinoid pesticides, the real kind of terrible bee-killing pesticides, banned. Um, France has gone even further. You can't even use them in greenhouses anymore. Um, you know, Germany is uh, banning um, gas-powered leaf blowers because insects love um, uh, hiding underneath the leaves. So they, they've kind of taken that measure. Some countries are working on um, light pollution reductions uh, and that sort of thing. And you're seeing these kind of these kind of new ways of farming starting to kind of worm their way into the conversation, even in the US, which is kind of very dominated by monocultural farming and big ag, um, regenerative uh, farming, you know, putting in um, corridors or wildflowers so insects can have a bit of breathing room by the side of fields and they can connect and so on. Um, so there's some kind of big picture policy stuff, but a lot of it is is things that you can do at home and a lot of it is quite indolence. A lot of it is quite, um, if you're a lazy person, you can you can do it. I mean, insects have not thrived due to our tidiness and our obsession with everything having its place. So a weed, the word weed is quite a subjective word. It's a plant that we consider to be in the wrong place, where in fact is it's food for an insect. So if you could just, if you do have a yard, to maybe not mow the grass every week, uh, don't rake the leaves as often, don't put uh, chemicals on your um, property as much, um, let some kind of weeds or native plants, whatever you want to call them, grow in a kind of a variety of um, action around your around your property. And you'll see the insects come back. And we saw this, saw this in the pandemic when a lot of local authorities started, stopped cutting the grass beside 
highways, you started seeing wildflowers pop up. And for the first time in years, people were seeing birds around. And why was that? Because the insects had come back. Well, Oliver Millman, thank you so much for talking to us. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Oliver Millman is the environment correspondent for The Guardian in the United States and the author of The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Well, Seth, it's that time again. What is the big picture here in our show about insects? Of course, we've heard a lot of commentary about what insects do, uh, how they're used even by chimpanzees. But the thing that struck me the most was that A, 40% of all insect species are declining, but the decline is 1% to 2% per year. That's an exponential decrease. And that means in three decades, half of all insects will be gone. And that really scared me because the causes are so diffuse. There are many different causes, and it's not easy to fix this problem. Yes, and the other fear is that some of the insects may go away before we've learned what species they are and what some of their relationships are. The next time I see a bug... (laughs) I'll be happy to see it. This show would not be possible without the Busy as Bees dedication of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that considers the diversity of life on our planet. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and also a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Original music in the show by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at the unique niches filled by insects and the consequences of their declining populations is called The Latest Buzz. 